Well, I want to I begin this morning um, with a little exercise. I'm going to give you three statements. I'm going to put them on the screen, and I want you to decide which of the statements you most align with. So the first is this. The Bible is the Word of God and is to be taken literally word for word. Here's the second one. The Bible is the inspired Word of God. Not everything in it should be taken literally. And here's the last one. The Bible is an ancient book of fables, history, and moral precepts recorded by men. You've got those, those three statements. Think for a moment which one, which you think is the true statement, if you will. So, these three statements are three different positions about the Bible, perspectives of the Bible, that were given to a group of pastors. They were surveyed in 2014. So, the first one, the Bible is the Word of God, and it's to be taken literally, word for word. How, how, how many, by show of hands, it's okay. There's, I mean, I think there's a right answer, but it's okay. Who, who would align best with this one? No one. Okay, about 28% of pastors agreed with that statement. Here's the second one. The Bible is the inspired word of God, but not everything in it should be taken literally. How many, how many align with that? All right, that's, that's like everybody. Good, We've, we're on the same page with that. All right, there, 47% of pastors agreed with that one. And then the last one, any, anyone um, hold to this? This was actually the one that was the most surprising to me, that uh, 21% of pastors, not like just average people walking on the street, but 21% of people agreed with this statement, that the Bible is fables, legends, maybe some history thrown in it. Now, what's interesting about these survey responses is that the way that they're structured, I don't know if this was intentional or not, but it seems to categorize them in a descending order of how seriously you take the Bible, right? Taking it literally, word for word, seems to be the most faithful response. That's why it, it almost comes like a, a trick question, if, if, you know, depending on how you, you read that, especially when it's opposed at the other end at, by treating a little bit more than, you know, Aesop's fables. But as, you know, I think most of us agree with, I think if there was a quote-unquote correct answer, um, I would argue the one in the middle, that believing the truthfulness of the Bible, but not recognizing that not every word should be taken literally. So this morning, we're continuing a series we've been going through. We've been going through a, a book called Confront Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin, and it's 12 difficult questions of the faith, challenging questions of, of the faith. And so the, the, this morning, we're going to be uh, answering this question. How can you take the Bible literally? It's a question that I hear a lot, um, but frankly, it's not a very good question, as I'm going to get to in a minute, because it, it's evident that we should not take the Bible literally, word for word, in all circumstances. Really, when folks are asking the question, I think what they're asking is, how can I believe what's recorded in the Bible, right? Is the Bible actually true? Now, I'll share a little bit about miracles. I'll share a little about like contradictions you might find in the text, um, because I think that's the question that people ask when it comes down to the literalness. But 
because this I'm going to answer this question first and then um, try to respond to the question that's implicit in it. So now we have a, a platform as we think about this idea of literalness. We have a platform to understand complexities, nuances of the biblical text in our own English. Uh, Rebe Rebecca McLaughlin actually begins her chapter with this example, right? If a, if a friend comes to me and said, you know what, I just got dumped by my boyfriend or girlfriend, and they said, I've got a broken heart, or my heart is breaking right now. I'm not going to pick up the phone and dial 911, right? I'm not going to try to administer CPR to them because I know, I understand that they're speaking metaphorically. Now, similarly, if I wake up in the middle of the night and I feel like my heart has been gripped by a chest and I won't relent, and I call 911 to say, I think I'm having a heart attack, the medics aren't going to come into my house and try to alter my mood with chocolates and ice cream and a movie to take my mind off of it, right? Because they know the seriousness of the issue that is going on. We understand the difference of my heart is breaking in a literal sense versus a metaphorical sense. And there's plenty of times where our lives depend on that difference, that understanding those nuances. Researchers have found that metaphors are memorable, they're persuasive, they're moving for us. So if you are an orator, if you're giving a speech or you're talking or teaching, metaphor is your friend to paint pictures that resonate with your listeners in ways that are meaningful, ways that they can take with them. Metaphor is important in the Bible because it is the primary form that Jesus used when he taught. We don't take Jesus literally word for word every, with everything that he says. For example, he used literary devices like hyperbole, making an exaggerated claim to prove your point. He said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Now, most scholars don't believe that he meant literally that we were to maim our bodies, but that Jesus is trying to demonstrate the importance of disciplining your body, disciplining self-control for the sake of the kingdom of God. In the Gospel of John, Jesus has seven I am statements, and we looked at these back in the fall of 2022. For example, he says, I am the good shepherd. Now, is Jesus in that moment saying that he is a farmer? No, at least not literally, but he is absolutely saying that he has authority over and compassion for his people, represented in the metaphor as sheep. He's not literally the one who tends, guides, and shears sheep, but that doesn't make the statement any less true. We see Jesus from time to time run into problems with his original audience as he gave metaphors. There were times that the Jewish people misunderstood him because they took him literally. One of my favorite is John chapter 3, you know, where we get that famous, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, John 3.16. Jesus is talking with a Pharisee, Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is intrigued by Jesus to say, you know, tell me more. And Jesus says, in order to see the kingdom of God, one has to be born again where we get that phrase, being a born-again Christian from that passage. Listen to Nicodemus' response. This is John 3 to 4. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? 
Nicodemus is like, hold up, Jesus. How can I be born again? Like, there's no way that I'm going to fit back into my mother's uterus. How about the chapter before? John chapter 2, Jesus has just cleansed the temple, and the Jews ask him for a sign. They say, who gives you the right, the authority to do the things that you're doing? And listen to his response. This is John 2, 19 to 23, no, 21. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Right, Jesus makes the statement. The audience doesn't understand this metaphor, and, and frankly, if I was there, I may not have understood either. He's in the midst of the temple, and he's saying, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up in three days. So the Jews respond, verse 20, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. How are you going to raise it up in three days? Thankfully, the, the author, John, gives us insight that those original hearers were missing, verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. There are so many more examples that can be shown that not every word in the Bible is meant to be understood. One last one, Isaiah 55, 12. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Do we really think that the mountains are literally singing? Trees clapping hands, trees don't have hands. Mountains don't have vocal cords, right? No, of course not. It's a literary device meant to point to the worship that all creation in its own way. To answer this question, how can you take the Bible literally? The answer is we shouldn't take the Bible literally, at least not all the time. And it's a question. I think a better question is how can you believe the Bible is true? Good question. Because the Bible has elements to it. I, I don't mean fantastic in the sense of, ooh, they're great. I mean, they are great. But they're things that defy our understanding and our rationality. Right? <clears throat> so I want to take a moment to discuss miracles, just one picture of that the existence of miracles in the Bible. And then I want to deal with another challenge that I often hear in the same spirit of the question is the Bible's reliability is, what about all those contradictions? All those times the Bible doesn't agree with itself. So let's begin with miracles. There are those who find the scriptures incredulous because events occur that seem to defy the laws of science. Jesus turns water, plain, ordinary, well water into wine. He feeds thousands of people with a meager lunch. He brings sight to the blind, healing to the lame. He raises people, brings people back to life, back from the dead. Skeptics look at these events and chalk them up to legends or misunderstandings of the original hearers. To them, right, Jesus is just little more than a huckster, a trickster, someone who is, is, is making a show but can't really ultimately deliver because people can't do that. For example, I've, heard, I've, I've read where skeptics try to explain away the feeding of the thousands. It happens, it's a miracle that happens a couple of times in the Gospels. Saying, nothing miraculous happens. You can't take matter and make it out of nothing. If, that's your, if you remember that, your chemistry, high school chemistry teacher would be proud. They would say it's instead a different kind of parable. Instead of feeding by creating matter out of nothing, what Jesus really did was showcase the value of sharing so that all the people who were there, 
You know, they had hoarded, stored away food just for themselves, but brought it out. They were convinced that, oh, I should share with others. And that's where all the food came from, so that all had enough. The name for this process is demythologizing the scriptures. Right? It's trying to remove the mythology, those things that couldn't possibly happen in real life. But one of the problems with this framework is that it undercuts what God is capable of doing. If God is the creator of the laws of science, then he exists outside of them and he's able to work outside of them. You know, we had a little like a, a, a um, philosophical, but it was kind of like metaphysical conversation small group many years ago about like the nth dimension. I'm not going to go into it. There's a whole thing. I think, uh, um, uh, what's his name? Rob Bell did something they called the Flatlands, where he talks about a two-dimensional world and a three-dimensional world and how what exists in a three-dimensional world would be like magic to the 2D world. Again, that's, I'm, I'm going on a tangent. But the idea is God is outside of bend, to alter reality around him, bending the laws of physics, whether that be appearing in a locked room, walking on water, feeding thousands of people with nothing more than a few loaves of bread and a couple fish. The pinnacle of those miracles was the resurrection. I shared a few weeks ago that the vitality of our faith depends on the resurrection of Jesus as a historical event. One thing that we should not do is pretend that we know so much better than all those people in the ancient world, as if they were somehow dumb and were enlightened and intelligent now. C.S. Lewis calls that chron chronological snobbery. Now, 2,000 years ago, they may not have understood the laws of gravity, but they knew that if they held an object here and let go, it would fall to the ground. They may not have been able to understand our full cardiovascular and nervous systems, but they knew that dead people didn't come back to life. So they should not rationalize the accounts of Jesus' resurrection by lowering the intelligence of these naive first century Christians, as if it's like, oh, they didn't know that he was actually dead. You know, there's one theory that Jesus, um, it's called the, uh, the uh, I think it's the swoon theory, you know, that, that Jesus, you know, didn't actually die on the cross, but he just went unconscious from shock. And when he was put in this cold, uh, this cold tomb, that, that kind of briskness woke him up. It kind of startled him awake again. And that's, that's how they account for the, the resurrection of Jesus, that he was still alive. But you know what? Like, the Romans were experts at death. They had crucified ten, tens of thousands of people. And the Bible even says that they went around to break the legs of the people that were on the cross, but they didn't break Jesus' legs because the soldiers knew he was already dead, that he wasn't breathing. And so to even just, I mean, it, it is like absurd. It is ridiculous for people, the, the ways, the, uh, the, the hoops they try to jump through in order to get away from the resurrection. Um, again, it's that chronological snobbery as if the Romans didn't know what they were doing. <clears throat> Miracles, I believe, in the Bible 
physical realities. Now, this doesn't mean that they can't also serve as metaphors, right? Jesus often uses the physical reality to highlight a deeper truth. For example, Mark 2, right? Jesus is teaching. Some of you know the story. This is where there's the four friends have a fifth friend who's paralyzed, and they bring him in a bat, and there's no room, so they, like, rip open the guy's roof and let, lower him down so that he can be near Jesus. So that, um, and, and when Jesus gets, when this guy gets before Jesus, the response of this friend's faith is not to heal him, which is what they wanted, but it's to forgive his sins. Sons, your sins are forgiven. The reason the healing followed is because the Pharisees were incredulous that guy being so bold to claim something that only God can do, forgiving sins. So what Jesus does, right? The healing is a metaphor, saying, year. Mark 8, 22 to 25. And they came to Bethsaida. Some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and let him, this is Jesus, uh, let him out of the village. He had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him. He asked, do you see anything? And he, the blind man, looked up and said, I see people, but they look kind of like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now, what, what's going on in this story? Like, is Jesus not really capable of healing this guy? Like, it didn't quite stick the first time, so, you know, he needs to do it a second time, make sure the magic was effective. No. The two-part healing, I think, is intentional in this, right? It's a physical reality where there are these two steps in the physical healing, which is uh, flanked by the spiritual reality of the disciples, that they are progressively being, becoming, being able to see spiritually what's going on. Last one, Luke 5, 1 to 11, after a night of unsuccessful fishing, Jesus challenges Peter and says, out one more time. Peter's like, Jesus, there aren't any fish, but you're the boss. We're going to do as you ask. So they go out and they lower their nets, and the result is an enormous catch of fish that so much that it was breaking the nets. And the point is, verse 10, right? So there's this physical miracle, right? This miraculous catch of fish after a night. And again, Jesus wasn't a fisherman. Peter was the fisherman. He's the one that says, you know what, Jesus, like, I'm the expert here. There's no fish, but he's obedient. And Jesus provides this miracle. The point is verse 10. Jesus says, learn from this. From now on, you will be fishers of men, right? The God is able to do the miraculous, but how can we trust the Bible when it's filled with contradictions? Now, I'll freely acknowledge that the Bible does have tensions that are not always easily resolved. There are parts of the scriptures that may provide challenging, difficult to explain. However, when I hear this criticism of the Bible, it usually comes from people who really don't have much idea of what is actually in the Bible. You know, I, I, when they talk about all these contradictions, my, my first response is usually to say, like, can you, can you point one to me? Like, let's go through it together. Show me. And the response is usually like a deer in headlights look. Like, uh, I'm not really sure, you know? And, and they have trouble pointing to the passages because they're just, 
repeating sound bites that they've heard on YouTube or um, from other people. Now, again, I'll admit, I may not be able to reconcile every different tension that exists. For example, resurrection accounts. Matthew describes one angel waiting at the empty tomb. Luke recounts two angels waiting at the empty tomb. Which one's correct? I don't know. Again, I, I don't, doesn't take away the, uh, my, my trust in this, as I'll get to in a minute. E- even in those tensions, I have yet to find a true, quote-unquote, contradiction that undermines the reality of the book. Too often, we are trying to read the Bible with our 21st century minds, which understands history to be written in a particular way, which may be different than the way that history was accounted to. For example, if you're trying to read the Bible straight through, you pick it up, it doesn't take very long to find one of these commonly pointed to contradictions. There are two creation accounts in the Bible. The first is Genesis 1, just the first couple of verses of Genesis 2. Right, this is the creation story you probably are all familiar with. Seven days culminating with the Sabbath on the seventh day when God rested. In this depiction, day three is when vegetation, when plants are made. Humans are created after the plants on day six. But then in Genesis 2, chapter 2, verse 4, you see the start of a different narrative. And in this one, God makes the humans before he made plants in the Garden of Eden. One of them clearly is an error, right? They contradict each other. Again, the problem is we read these passages the way that we would read our biology textbook or our history textbook. But the depictions in those chapters are more theological than they are mechanical. They're written in such a way to tell us something about God, something about creation, something about humanity. It's not trying to give us a precise mechanism for the creation. In fact, we get a clue to the story with the name of God that's used. Genesis chapter 1 uses the generic title for God, Elohim, as it describes this cosmic nature of creation, the creating of the sun, the moon, and the stars. Genesis chapter 2 uses the name Yahweh, that personal, that intimate name for God known by the Hebrew people. Genesis chapter 1, the powerful cosmic God creates by the power of his word. He just says it, and it happens. Genesis 2, the intimate God, Yahweh, shapes Adam out of the dust of the earth. The stories are not contradictory, but they're, they are different elements of the It's the same thing in the Gospels. Right, we have four different Gospels which share the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but there are times where their chronology does not perfectly align up, where there are some slight variances, like I mentioned earlier about the angels at the tomb. If we think about it, these four authors agree quite strikingly they wrote while separated by a few decades and many miles from one another. They were all eyewitnesses to the accounts of the ministry of Jesus. I mean, think about it. Like, if, if we are, you know, walking, I don't know, let's just say we're walking together to reason. We witness a car accident. Each of us, as we're giving our testimony to the police, is going to give a slightly different perspective events that transpired. They're all true, 
but we might focus on different facts, or there might be certain things that we just choose to leave out in our recounting. When we remember that the four gospel authors are writing to different people, it helps us understand that the, the product doesn't always agree verbatim, and that's okay. It's not supposed to, right? Matthew is a Jewish audience, so he focuses more on, on displaying Jesus' messianic nature, especially seeing Jesus as like a second Moses to the Jewish people. Mark writes a short, very accessible account that is intended to draw the reader in. Luke writes a closely researched account in some of the most complex Greek in the New Testament. John, John's gospel is meant to showcase the divinity of Jesus, that this miracle was literally beyond God in the flesh. They're all intended to do something a little bit different. Taking all of that into consideration, what we have in the Bible is a document that is very reliable and frankly more historical, historically reliable than any other ancient document that are just taken at face value. You're going to encounter challenges while you read. Because, again, we're separated. Right? The, the, the Bible was written between 3,500 to 2,000 years from the earliest writing to the latest writing. We are separated from those original writings, and so there's a lot of cultural, there's a lot of linguistic cues that we're missing because of that time gap. It's okay to have puzzles in the text that we don't 100% understand. I know we're often not comfortable with that in the Age of Enlightenment, but a little bit of mystery is good for us, especially when we see such clarity on the items that really, really matter, such as the resurrection of Jesus. So let me start to close with a few take-homes for us. You've heard me state that I don't believe that every word of the Bible should be, understand, should be understood literally, but how do we determine as we're reading the Bibles, how can we tell the difference of whether something is literal or is metaphorical? Now, I would say the number one clue is the genre of chapters. The Bible has many different genres, many different styles of writing. There's laws, there's poetry, there's letters written in places. And each of these different genres has a different But you remember hearing about Orson Welles, right? Wrote War of the Worlds. And in 1938, they did a radio broadcast of War of the Worlds. And people out thinking that New Jersey had actually been invented. Now, while it sounded like a radio broadcast, a news broadcast, if they had known that what was being communicated was science fiction, the reaction would have been different. We understand this difference in genre. We read a biography very different than we read an Agatha Christie murder mystery. Genre gives us insight into how we are to understand what we're reading. For example, in the Bible, the Good Samaritan, it sounds very realistic. He gives people, he gives places, he kind of locates it. But given that it was a parable, it helps us understand that it probably wasn't a historical event, but a story from Jesus' imagination meant to highlight love of neighbor. You know, I actually, I've been reading them about two-thirds of the way through, The Kite Runner, and I had to keep Googling, like, 
Like, is this a true story? Because it, it comes across so much. I mean, it's such a rich imagination that it comes across as a true story, but it's not. It's, it's meant to be a fiction, maybe historical fiction. Bring those together. One of the best resources for the Bible that can help you navigate these different genres is a book by Doug Stewart and Gordon Fee called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. It's fantastic. It breaks down the different genres. I think there's like eight or nine that they highlight in the scriptures and provides a matrix, helps you understand, okay, how should I understand what I'm reading right now? Now, when it comes to understanding the nuances of the text or even trying to reconcile some of the apparent contradictions, I'd suggest a good commentary. There, I mean, we are in, live in such a gifted age. Not only that we have a Bible um, in print, you know, Nick talked about um, Luther 500 years ago with uh, um, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. That would have been about the time that the printing press would have been available. Prior to that, like, nobody had personal Bibles. But not only do I have a personal Bible, but I have a Bible that has all kinds of, like, little study notes at the, bo- the bottom that if, like, I have trouble understanding what the Bible's talking about, I can go to, and experts can say, oh, yeah, this is what this means. But also I can go in, on Amazon and tomorrow have a, have a document this thick just on the Gospel of Mark if I really want to, like, dig into it. There are a lot of places that, you know, commentaries can help us understand. And no, no expert can interpret a passage with 100% confidence or certainty. But many of these scholars are educated and understand the history and the language well beyond the training that we have. And, you know, commentaries can help us understand those words, you know, because the Bible wasn't written in English. It was written in Hebrew and Greek. Tools, most easily accessible tools at your disposal is community. The scriptures were not meant to be read in isolation. They were meant to be read alongside of one another. Most of Paul's letter were written to a people, to a church, not a person. I mean, even his personal letters, like you have Timothy and Titus, they were quickly understood to have value beyond two why small groups can be such an effective means. Like, we don't have all the answers, but we all approach the text from a slightly different perspective. And so I think we can actually shed light into some, some of the hidden crevices of the Bible that I've overlooked. And so, again, to answer the question, I don't think we should interpret the Bible. I think we can believe the Bible is true. But as we seek to read the Bible, to understand it, to trust it, we read it not literally, but literarily. And so here are some questions that I'm going to leave for you. Um, I'll put them on Facebook and the website. So in your own words, how If you do, if you do, pass it on. Let me know. I'll bring it up at our next Q&A. Um, you know, like w- one of the ones that people have talked about is uh, who killed Goliath? Because in uh, a Second Samuel, I think it is, I know First Samuel, it's David, right? Everybody knows David killed Goliath. <clears throat> but in Chronicles, First Chronicles, there's this line that makes it sound 
like someone else killed Goliath. But when you kind of unpack through, it's like, not actually, it's, it's not Goliath that they're talking about, but the brother of Goliath, anyway, the whole other thing. Um, so if you have passages that are challenging, let me know. I want to I wanna unpack those for us. And then lastly is this, like, find a way to get your hands on what suggested this morning, that Steve Stewart book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, you know, Bible Commentary, Study Bible, or, you know, plug, come to small group. Um, we'll be meeting at 6.30, talking about heaven. All right, let me pray, and uh, we got one more song we'll sing together. Let's pray. God, thank you for the ways in which you have given us this word, this, uh, these scriptures that we are not left to our own devices to try to uh, grasp blindly at who you are, but you have communicated um, your nature to us. Help us to um, read these words in community. As we prayed this morning in that liturgical prayer, may your Holy Spirit be present to provide illumination, to help us understand those scriptures that he inspired. Lord, may we be gracious and patient with one another because we're going to come to different conclusions in the text, but ultimately may we continue to challenge each other to um, understand more about you, more about ourselves, and more about the world that you've created. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.